Welcome to When There Are No Words, conversations between artists about grief and hope in their work. This series is sponsored by 10 of those, resources that point to Jesus change lives. To support the podcast, get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and other gifts, join us on Acast Plus for as little as £5 a month. Hello, I'm Michael J. Tinker and welcome to episode one of When There Are No Words. In this episode, I chat with my friend Andrew Peterson, who's over in Nashville, singer, songwriter, author, and uh, we talk about all sorts of things. We um, take a dive into his album, The Burning Edge of Dawn, and a fascinating story of how he approaches writing, not just songs, but writing albums. And because of that, with that particular album, he ended up going on quite a deep journey of discovery just through uh, the process of writing. Um, And we get to uh, go on that journey as well with him as we listen to the album. Uh, We also talk about his uh, Wing Feather series and um, how uh, grief and struggle work its way into that and how important that is for children. Uh, We talk about art, poetry, songwriting, storytelling, album writing, um, having a songwriting filter, very important to have one of those, glass bottom boats, um, Socrates, Wendell Berry, Tolkien gets a brief mention, David Wilcox, Jason Gray, other people that I can't pronounce, um, but uh, so many things that we chat about, so it's well worth um, having a listen to this conversation, and uh, do stick right through to the end because we have an absolutely massive uh, giveaway um, for you Uh, so stay tuned for that but here's the episode so today i have with me andrew peterson uh, singer songwriter author producer of multi-million dollar animated series do you do you have the label producer yeah illustrator of trees um for those listeners who who don't know you um why don't you Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I have been married for 28 years now to Jamie, who is uh, wonderful. She's the mother of our three children who are not children anymore. My uh, my oldest son, Aiden, is married and has a baby, my, grand, my first granddaughter. Um, and he and his wife are both professional illustrators and uh, work on the animation team for Wing Feather and other, a bunch of other stuff. Um, and then my son, Asher, and his wife, Olivia, also live in Nashville, and he's a record producer and uh, tour manager. And uh, my daughter Sky is a singer-songwriter. She just got engaged, so uh, hopefully she'll yeah. be married off by the end of the year. So we are. Um, that's that's my. Uh, I was just talking to somebody yesterday. Is like I more than ever I think of myself in terms of my relationship with uh, first, obviously Jesus, but second of all, uh, my wife and my kids. You know. The other stuff has yeah. come and gone over the years, but they have been the consistent, steady uh, voices of love in my life. So um, they, more than anybody else, um, have kind of shaped who I am now. And uh, But as far as work goes, I um, I do love to make stuff. So I, I do like to draw a lot. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, I like to... Uh, I have written a lot of songs over the years. I've um, written several books, and uh, yeah, this this whole executive producer thing is, is is a new thing that I'm I'm learning about. And so, yeah, and I founded the Rabbit Room, and uh, the founder and kind of president of the Rabbit Room board, um, which is a nonprofit here in Nashville, and um, member of my church here in town. And uh, yeah, I don't know how what else to say. <laughs> I was going to say you're a busy bee, but you also keep bees. I do. Yes, I do actually keep bees. They are much busier than I am, but yes, I do keep bees. They're right outside my window as we speak. (laughs) It is amazing that you have time for all of that. But um, let's dive into the songs and the stories. So what what started you writing songs and stories? Um, I think, you know, the very, very beginning, it was just because I was uh, in high school and, and wanted, you know, felt like I... I was drawn to music and drawn to books and stories, but it was all very, you know, I didn't really have anything to say when I was in high school. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, I was a nominal Christian. Uh, I was growing up in like the American South, which is very culturally Christian, quote unquote. Um, Flannery O'Connor called it the the Christ haunted South. 
Uh, it's just like there may not be a lot of Christians here, but Christ definitely haunts the place. Uh, and so I, I grew up in that culture, and which came with a lot of real blessings and a lot of real uh, non-blessings. Uh, but yeah, songs were like an escape for me. They, they, I was drawn to the way they made me feel. Same thing with the books that I read. Like they, they produced a flutter in my stomach or a like quickening in my heart that I, I seemed, I was, I was curious about. And, uh, so I, I leaned into it to try to understand like what was going on here. And, you know, it's always self-expression and songs about, you know, your girlfriend dumping you or whatever. Um, and then when I uh, became a Christian, when I was uh, about 18, 19 years old, I, I, I realized um, that the stories were all true, you know, that I'd been growing up reading and, uh, and that Jesus was real and I couldn't escape him anymore. And, and, the, and the real thing that happened was that I realized that he wasn't always mad at me. Uh, I actually encountered Jesus through the music of Rich Mullins and it, it helped me realize that he was kind and uh and wanted good things for me you know and uh and so i that has shaped my whole life and so the fact that that i encountered jesus through music kind of gave me a a way to imagine a thing that i could do to thank him you know it was like i i, I want if i didn't know how good he was and a song was what helped me understand it then maybe I could write songs to help other people understand how good he is. Does that make sense? And and then the same yeah, same thing totally. happened with books. You know, I grew up reading fantasy novels and you know uh, thrillers and uh, adventure stories and uh, and then you know through the Lord of the Rings and the Narnia books and a bunch of other books that were written by Christians. Uh, those books woke something up in me and helped me understand who Jesus really was in a way that other things didn't. And so. I, I tried my hand at writing those kinds of stories too. So um, yeah, that that's that's what brought me to it. It was like you know it, I I don't know I know a little of like how English culture works and and the 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 church over there and it's not terribly different than things were over here. You know, twenty or thirty years ago, I was growing up in a context where if you wanted to go into the ministry, that meant you had to be a pastor or a missionary. Right? Um, no one yeah. would have really had the language to say, oh, if you want to, if you want to go into the ministry, you could be a songwriter <laughs> or you could, you could yeah. write adventure yeah. stories for kids or you could, um, you know, uh, well, I don't know, take care of your garden and share it with people as a way of ministering. So all of these things like, like it, as a, as a very artistic person, um, growing up, I just mm -hmm. never realized that those things could be integrated with the gospel. And that, that a life in Christ, like one a, a really beautiful and faithful expression of a life in Christ could be writing a fantasy novel, you know, or, uh, or I don't know, drawing a picture or, uh, or shaping the world around you to be something beautiful. So that, those, were, those were not the kind of things that I understood as a boy. And, and I really believe them now. And that's part of the reason The Rabbit Room was born. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and it's still, I think it's still the case, largely that you know there's certain uh yeah if you want to go into ministry it's particular church work so you know it's expanded youth work and so on but songwriting gardening mm, um a little bit strange and and that kind of leads me on to the su subject of the podcast as well about grief and hope and i think that's possibly another area that the church is kind of a little bit squeamish about which is slightly bizarre given that we're all about the death and resurrection of jesus so death is kind of right central to the gospel but we still get a bit uh queasy when it comes to questions that maybe don't have obvious answers and 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 of course grief and struggle is particularly uh particularly has that um but you you seem to have thrown yourself into that in spite of possibly other people maybe not wanting it you've you've thrown yourself into addressing those those questions of struggle um what is it that drew you to do that? What made you go, I've got to address these things. I've got to sing about this rather than just going, mm, let's just do happy songs. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I'm a, I'm an Enneagram four. I don't know if you guys do the Enneagram or talk about it over there, but like, uh, I'm, I'm pretty drawn to melancholy. Like 
I, I, I enjoy the feeling of sadness in a weird way, you know? Um, the example I always yeah. think of is like, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's people who like the end of the movie La La Land and people who hate the ending of La La Land. And if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> you must. It's a great, great movie. And I know what you mean. Yeah, the ending has this like real bittersweet, like sadness to it. And I just was reveling. Yeah. I was like, that's the greatest ending ever. And a lot of the people that I was with were like, that is the worst ending ever. I hate that movie. So I, I am drawn to that, that bittersweetness, you know, and, uh, and you know, that's where a lot of good songs come from. Like you, you, there's a, there's a feeling of, um, there for me anyway, um, it's harder to write happy songs and which, which also means that I, I, I love writing happy. Like when I, I'm excited when I land on a song that is like bright and hopeful and happy, you know, it's a good feeling to be able to have those songs. But I think, you know, if I were to really sum up why I, in my mind, uh, you know, if you listen to my first record, uh, my, the first label album that came out, I guess, in 2000, um, I hear a lot of songs, not a lot of songs, there are songs on there that are very uh, self-flagellating, you know, like there's a lot of like shame songs in there. Okay. And uh, mm. and also songs that are just story songs and 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 kind of about whatever. Uh, I, there there's not a ton of depth to it, as far as the the emotion uh, in those songs. And you know, there's a song called the Chasing Song that I get requested a lot, and I won't play it. I don't like playing it because I don't like how it makes me feel. I just don't like the song very much. <laughs> uh, what I hear in that song is a guy who doesn't believe that Jesus loves him. I hear a guy who is just really you know, legalistic and, and zealous and, and thinks the point of it all is, um, being a good boy, you know? And the, it's, it's like Rich Mullins used to sign his, uh, his CDs, Be Gods, which he would say, like, he wouldn't say be good. He would say be gods. Like the point is not, uh, hmm. try as hard as you can to be as good as you can. The point is, rest in the fact that you belong to Jesus. And that is the sp wellspring through which the goodness and the obedience and the, the joy of, of a life in uh, walking in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Does that, you know what I mean? I didn't know that back then. I was, I was beginning to learn it. I barely know it now. But the, uh, anyway, I guess I'll say that R Rich Mullins, um, like I got the sense that he was lonely in his music, you know? There are songs where he wrote about his singleness, uh, about his his ache to be with Jesus, and uh, and I don't know. There's I didn't hear much of that language in a lot of other Christian music up to that point. There was a lot of joy and there was a lot of scripture in his songs, but he was very honest about his own struggle, um, and I was very drawn to that. And and so when I sat down to write my own songs, I was like, well, I I want to try to be as honest as he was uh, about my own struggles, um, and and not wallow in it. You know, those things are grounded in uh, the love of Jesus as the foundation, but, but the love of Jesus allows us to, to, with freedom, express the desolation we sometimes feel, you know? We're, we're safe to do that. Um, and then the second thing I would say was there's a writer named Frederick Buechner, um, which I don't know, I don't think he's, a, he's very well known over in the UK, but the, um, it's spelled B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R, Frederick Buechner, and he died last year, and uh, was this, you know, uh, I don't agree with everything that he wrote theologically, but he was an excellent memoirist, and uh, wrote some wonderful books. I mean, one of his novels, Godric, was the runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize, so in, in like the mainstream world of publishing, he was very highly regarded, um, but he was, a, he was a Christian, and, um, and wrote quite a few books of essays and memoirs and stuff. One of them is called um, Telling Secrets, and it's in some ways a book written to pastors um, about being honest with your own story. So one of the, the, the key quotes from Frederick Buechner is, uh, he said, the story of one of us in some measure is the story of us all. And so if you learn, really pay attention to your story, pay attention to your life, that's, that's, and, and you write about it, you're going to see the evidence of God's hand moving in it, right? So listening to your life, realizing that your life may, f may seem to you to be very mundane and uninteresting, 
But if you're paying close attention to it, it's just like shot through with grace. Uh, God's presence is always there. It's, he's always like surprising us with these little moments. So for example, I, uh, you know, when I'm, it's been a while since I've written a record, but I don't usually write songs. I write albums, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really yeah, get yeah. busy writing yeah. songs until I have this deadline and we're going to go into the studio and then I start really writing. And, and so, uh, but there's a definite change in, in the way I move through the, my days whenever I'm writing songs, right? Like I feel like I put on a different hat and, and the songwriter hat means that I'm scanning the horizon for little moments of grace, little examples of mm -hmm. God's presence with me, um, little uh, evidences, right? And, um, and trying to decipher what it is that he's doing in me. You know, like, like, like it's been three years since I've made an album. I'm going to make an album now. I wonder what, what he's been up to in me and, and around me in the last three years. And so this, so that's a learning to pay attention to your life, learning to listen to your life as Frederick mm. Buechner would say. Um, and so that idea that, you know, you have something to offer to your brothers and sisters that can edify them and can be, you know, a little help on their journey. As George McDonald would have put it, like each of us has a way of making known the heart of the father to the, each of our brothers and sisters. You know, like you, Michael, your relationship with God the father is special and unique. And you are gonna know things about his heart because of the way he uniquely loves you that I need to know about, right? And so knowing that mm -hmm. gives you the freedom as a writer to go, well, I get, I'm going through hell right now and I, I need to write about it because the fact that I'm going through this thing means that I, maybe that'll be helpful to somebody else. So grief, grief and hope end up becoming uh, like redeemed almost by the process of writing about them. Um, I, th I think the burning edge of dawn. So that was 2015. I think you brought that album out. I think this was the first album that I heard of yours I might have heard the odd song here and there, but I think this was the first album. Now, I've always had a... I think possibly other people would share this. There's a lot of Christian music that's very twee. And like I, I like to say it's like the Christian equivalent to um, Everything is Awesome from the Lego, the movie. Lego movie. <laughs> um, and I, early on when I started songwriting, I said my, my two aims were to write a song that made people cry and to go on Jules Holland. He does a TV series here. I haven't been on Jules Holland yet, but um, but the thing I wanted to write songs that moved people. And the thing about a lot of Christian music I found just wasn't that moving because it didn't it didn't speak into those difficult things. And then hearing this album, it's like, oh, Christians can write songs <laughs> that are moving, that speak to the struggle of life. Uh, and don't skip to the end too quickly and yet are infused with hope. But enough about me talking about the, the album. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what was behind that album, um, why those themes are so strong, uh, particularly there. Yeah. Um, the So the, the album before The Burning Edge of Dawn is an album called Light for the Lost Boy. And um, I didn't know it, but that album was setting me up for a, a midlife crisis kind of total emotional breakdown. And um, I, you know, like I said earlier, when you're when I'm working on an album, I'm trying to interpret what it is that God's been up to. And, and I found myself with Light for the Lost Boy writing all these songs about the loss of innocence and childhood. And uh, <laughs> the the opening song on the record is called Come Back Soon. And, and it it's a it's a pretty desperate song like it, it is uh yeah i i just had like in one in about one year i had um i toured with ben shive and andy gullihorn for like a decade and the, and things were our lives were changing and they they were needing to stay home more so i found myself at the end of that season out on the road again without my two best friends uh and then uh celebrated my 20th wedding anniversary, completed my record contract, completed the Wing Feather Saga. Um, there, there were so many big life moments that all came to a, a cliff, 
right then. And so it makes a lot of sense. I was watching my my kids grow up, and uh, you know when they entered their teenage years, it it began to uh, I began to remember things from my own ten- teenage years that were sources of grief for me and my own brokenness. And I was just watching them grow up and realizing, oh man, you can't protect them forever. They're gonna they're gonna make their own mistakes and. And uh, so there was just a lot going on inside me. So when it was, so I didn't know it, but I was writing this album about that. So by the time I'd finished the album, I realized Light for the Lost Boy seemed like an appropriate title because uh, the image of a, a boy who was lost in the woods kept coming up, you know. And uh, and there was a little boy inside of me that I, I, I was grieving that the fact that he got lost, you know. And I can't go back. I can't be innocent again. I have to look forward to the day when Christ is going to ultimately completely heal and redeem all of this brokenness. And in the meantime, we're, we're carrying both, you know, inside of us. And so that's what Life for the Lost Boy was about. So then I, like, like an idiot, I went on the road and sang about it every night for two months, you know, and like with this band and, and, uh, you know, we, we framed the show as, uh, we had this wonderful, this, um, video that some, some guys made for me, um, where they interviewed a bunch of people and asked them to talk about the moment they knew the world was broken. And so there were all these people going back to their childhood and remembering, you know, seeing something happen or something happened to them or, seeing the destruction of creation and where they as as young boys and girls realized mm. the world is a broken place the, the innocent this is not eden anymore right um i'm watching that video every night i'm then singing all these songs about it every night and then at the end of it i just co- completely had a meltdown and and uh didn't know what to do so i entered it went in there's a wonderful christian counseling place here in nashville that i i began going to to help sort out what was going on inside me and uh and I found myself in what turned out to be a two or three year depression. Like I, I was, I mean, I don't know if it would technically be a depression. It was a two or three year season of real grieving and uh, sadness. And and uh, and then the label was like, hey, it's time to go in the studio and make another record. And I was like, oh my goodness, I am in no state to make a new album. And if I do make an album, it's going to be the saddest album anybody has ever heard. (laughs) And so I was like, okay. So I, I went into the studio and with almost no songs and began writing the songs. And it just so happened that we went into the studio in February and, uh, you know, it takes a couple months. So between when we started the record, it was the mud season, dreary, rainy, gray. And by the time we finished the album, the daffodils were coming out of the ground. The The world was waking up again. Green was returning to the world. And it just was, it felt like this divine conspiracy that God had had me go into the studio at the, at the end of this dark, sad season to show me that he was actually changing something, you know? And, uh, the, you know, the, what, I, what I usually tell, have told people before is I think there are two great lies that the enemy of our hearts tell tell tells us about depression or those seasons. One of them is that you're alone, that nobody knows what this feels like. And so there's an isolating tendency that happens. Um, and you have to know when you're going through that season of grief or depression or whatever, that you are not alone. There are other people who can carry this burden with you. Um, it's one of the great blessings of the church um, is that you can step into a room full of people who will help carry the burden with you, you know? And the other great lie is that this is forever. This is the rest of your life. You know, when you're in it, you feel like this is not going to end. I guess I just need to make peace with the fact that I'm going to be sad forever. And grief is going to go on forever. And uh, and it does, the sun does come up. You know, it does change. Things change. Um, I, I, okay, so this is a crazy, but this morning I was working to memorize a poem by Wendell Berry that um, I, I happened upon in a book, and it's about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, I'm gonna try it. Can I try saying it to you? Uh, it's about him going. Wendell Berry is this Kentucky farmer in America, uh, who evidently a friend gave him the gift of a trip to, um, I guess Spain, San Sepulcro, wherever that is. I'm assuming it's Spain, maybe Italy, uh, and it. Uh, 
it goes, it's about him seeing a painting of the resurrection of Jesus and describing what happened inside him when he saw this painting. And it goes, uh, early in the year, by my friend's gift, I saw in San Sepulcro Piero's vision. The soldiers who guard the dead from the living uh, themselves become as dead men, one tumbling dazedly backwards. Um, awake, his wounds bleeding still, one foot upon the tomb, Christ, who bore, uh, oh, hold on, Christ, who uh, bore our life to its most wretched end. Um, hold on, let me find it. Who bore our lives life to its most wretched end. Uh, oh, I'm going to read it. I, I've got to read it because I have it up on my I'm working to memorize it so, because I want to have it ready. Um, oh, here it is. Um, Christ, who bore our life to its most wretched end, having thrust off like a blanket the heavy lid, stands. But for his face and countenance I have found no words. Powerful beyond life and death, seeing beyond sight or light, Beyond all triumph, serene. All this Piero saw. And we, who were sleeping, seeking the dead among the dead, dare to be awake. We, who see, see we are forever seen. By sight have been forever changed. The morning at last has come. The trees once bare are green. Um, and that poem that, that like he's describing this amazing picture of Christ conquering death, you know, his foot is on the tomb, his wounds are bleeding still, the soldiers are falling back and, and his Christ, I've seen the painting, he's looking right at you with this look of serenity on his face. Like as, as Wendelberry puts it, beyond all triumph, serene, like he has triumphed and he's not reveling mm. and he's just serene and he's the Lord of, uh, he's, he's conquered death forever. And then he talks about how like we who see this. Uh, we realize that we are forever seen, that we have been forever changed by being seen by Christ. And then it ends with, uh, because it begins with him saying, early in the year, by my friend's gift, so in the winter. And at the end he says, the morning at last has come, the trees once bare are green. So the resurrection comes, right? And it's just such a beautiful journey through this poem to this realization that, you know, the the coming of spring is is, uh, is one of the testaments to Christ's conquering of death, right? He is woven into creation, yes, this sermon yeah. that gets preached every year. And so all that to say, The Burning Edge of Dawn was an album that I wrote uh, unwittingly while that was happening. Um, and, and so when I hear it, mm -hmm. I was so shocked to realize that it isn't a sad sounding album. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah, got heaviness yeah. to it, but it is, it, to me, it's a joyful, triumphant record because... Yeah. Um, I was writing about the, the coming of spring. Well, and all the more so because because of the honesty of where you're where you're at and what you're battling with. And, and because the album is a journey. And I do love that, that you write albums rather than individual songs and stick them together, um, because then you you get that progression. And, and, and I didn't realize that you had done it over those months as well. So that makes even more sense that there there literally was this journey through it not contrived actually that you're going through and yeah those come up quite a lot of those themes don't they of planting seeds and live springing even um uh oh the the there was a line oh yeah i did write it down later on in one of the songs whichever it is um the rains washed you clean at the end of burning edge of dawn yes whereas earlier the storm is scary the storm is so frightening um and so seeing the glimpses of grace and hope in all of these things, um, you know, even the dark before the dawn, there's got to be a dawn if there's dark. Um, so, yeah, I, I love how that just comes up again and again. But but there is a genuine struggle and you're happy. I say happy to sit there for a while and and open that out. Um, it's like. Um, do you know, I probably mentioned this in another episode as well, but the um, the never ending story, you know, I avoided that as a kid because I knew the horse died. And as I why, why, why am I going to put I, and because I do feel these things quite strongly, I thought I'm not going to put myself through that. It sounds awful. Um, but then I watched it with the kids a couple of years ago and and it was fascinating watching, particularly uh, Jonathan, my son, 
how he watched it. He was going, "What? What is this thing? Everybody's dying. It's a, you know the nothingness. The nothing is taking over." But then, turn off now if you've never watched the Neverending Story and you don't want a spoiler. When everything gets renewed, it's just one of the best pictures of the new creation. And he's, you know, the lad is racing through the sky. It's like, yeah, and it's like the nothing never was. But all of that hope feels so joyful because of all the darkness that went before it, but has now gone. But you've got to go through that to, to see it. Yeah, it's oh. it's you catastrophe. You just described you catastrophe perfectly. Yeah. The, to- the Tolkien yeah. word. The, the more modern example of that is uh, Avengers Endgame, the Marvel movie. At the end of Avengers Endgame, there's a great video online of uh, somebody having a camera in the theater filming the moment when, I won't, don't want to spoil it, but when the resurrection, quote unquote. Turn happens. off now if you don't want to spoil yeah. it. <laughs> when the big moment, you catastrophe moment happens at the end of the of Avengers, the guy had the camera going in a full theater and people are just cheering. People are in the audience going, woo, yeah, clapping and like shouting because it's like their bodies were responding to the story of you catastrophe. You know, uh, I think Tolkien yeah. was yeah, always yeah. getting at the fact that like there's something like at the heart of the human story, the story of creation that is responding to that yeah. truth that when when all hope seems lost, the author of the story brings joy. And isn't it going to be, I mean, awesome is going to be the, the right word for it. And when we get to the new creation and and we just see that in all its glory, everything transformed and, and changed and understood. The last song on the album that I've just done, um, the repeated refrain at the end is it sends through me pure shivers of joy. And it's just, mm. it's, I just it's just going to be overwhelming yeah. um, and amazing. A quick pause in the conversation to tell you about a special discount exclusively for listeners. You can get 30% off Andrew's book, Adorning the Dark, from 10 of those. Here's the blurb from the book. Andrew Peterson believes that God calls us to proclaim the gospel and the coming kingdom using whatever gifts are at our disposal. He stumbled along the way, made mistake after mistake, and yet has continually encountered the grace of God through an encouraging family, a Christ-centered community of artists in the church, and the power of truth, beauty, and goodness in scripture and the arts. At the intersection of songwriting, storytelling, and vocation, along with nuts and bolts exploration of the great mystery of creativity, Andrew describes six principles for the writing life. Serving the work, serving the audience, selectivity, discernment, discipline, community. This book is both a memoir of Andrew's journey and a handbook for anyone interested in imitating the way the creator interacts with his creation, written in the hope that his story will provide encouragement to others stumbling along in pursuit of a calling to adorn the dark with the light of Christ. So you can get 30% off that book from 10 of those um, with a very special code, which is NOWORDSAP23. That's no words or lowercase, and then capitals AP23. So pop that in in the basket on the 10 of those website and get your 30% off an excellent, excellent book. Right, back to the conversation. Um, one thing I'm quite interested in is how artists steward not only their stories, but also the stories of those around around them. Um, and so I've been asking a number of my guests uh, this question and how how they deal with that um your song always good if i remember the story correctly is the story of somebody else um so i just wonder if you could yeah talk about how you how you seek to do that faithfully um in a way that's helpful to the person whose story it is uh yeah tell us about how you navigate that's a good question uh i'm not sure i've ever really answered that question let me think about it uh i think well, I will just tell you that it is delicate, and I have been guilty in the past of of uh, maybe not being as careful with other people's stories as I probably should have been. Uh, you know, even even the song "Always Good," like it it is about such a really tragic, like ground zero kind of painful moment that uh, you know I wrote it not as a song to 
put on a record, but as a song to, I wrote it for the funeral of my friend's wife who died. And, um, and really didn't, I don't think, expect to sing it outside of that. I just wanted to, to, you know, try my best to, to write a song in her honor and to mark, uh, something that was, uh, true in the middle of a lot of pain and sorrow. And so, uh, you know, there was a, when I first wrote the song, I think I told the story about a little bit and, and then I felt a weird conviction. Like this isn't my story to tell. And, uh, you know, my friend knew about it and he, he's been, he'd been in the audience when I'd sung the song before. And so, um, but I did feel this like weird, um, like I was trespassing a little bit, you know, like when you hop a fence and you're in someone else's property, you're like, it's probably fine that I'm here, but you don't ever feel totally at ease <laughs> until you're back over the fence and you're whatever. Uh, so I, I think that I, um, I have since begun to be more careful with it. Um, and for sure would want to have the blessing of, you know, the, the person before I shared the story, you know what I mean? So, and I've always done that. I've, I've never, um, betrayed that confidence, I don't think. But, uh, but I do, I, I think that writing a song for someone is one of the great honors of songwriting, you know, like to, to have a song, I've had a few songs written for me that you, you know, aren't on records or whatever, that, that were gifts that were shared between me and this person. And it is one of the most profound blessings that there's a, there's an artifact in the world <laughs> that, uh, was there because of someone's expression of love to you. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that it's a beautiful thing to, to write on someone else's behalf, um, for them, but you also have to tread lightly to make sure that you're, uh, you're stewarding that, that gift well. So I think that's the best answer I have for that. Yeah. No, thank you. Are there things you consciously think about when writing about, uh, the darker or more difficult areas of life, life, either that you want to embrace or that you want to avoid? Um, or do you have, do you have the subject or story in mind and you just let the song go where it's going to go? Hmm. Do you have a, do you have a filter or do you, um, yeah. 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 I, I think I do have a filter. Um, you know, the filter for me is more of an aesthetic one than anything else. Like it is, is what I'm doing serving the, is it making it a good song or not? You know, <laughs> so, so in some ways like the, I'm not thinking in the first draft. I mean, I'm not thinking so much about, am, is this perfectly theologically accurate? Is this, um, self-expression or is this written out of love, you know, to, to love the listener? Like the first draft, you're just getting something out there and you're trying to make something that is, has something about its shape that is pleasing, right? Something, there's something in it that you feel like, Oh, there's a, it's a song with a capital S. And then you, you yeah. go back and you, you begin to shape it. You ask yourself questions, you ask yourself questions about, is this written just as a, a way of expressing my own self or am I trying to love other people through this? Um, I, I think it's important that I think songwriting ought to be a, a way of loving, not as, not just self-expression. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> and then of course, you know, as a Christian, I want to make sure that I'm not saying anything that's like theologically incorrect. So I have people that I vet the songs with and make sure that, Things, things are my, my use of scripture here or there. If I have any question about it, I, I'll, I will ask somebody smarter than me. Um, but no, I, I do. The, but the, big, the biggest thing is, <clears throat> not the biggest thing. I just think it's really important that as a songwriter, you have a sense of what is a good song and what is not a good song. And uh, you, you're a student of the craft. You're listening to the great songwriters. You're you're humble before them because you realize that you've got so far to go. Um, you realize that you're working with a mysterious medium that you can't always figure out. And, but you do have this almost like platonic form of the song in your mind or of, of a song. And you're always holding your, your 
feeble effort up against this true form of the thing. And, uh, and a lot of people I've noticed, like, I think when I was younger, I was really audacious and opinionated about my songwriting. And if I wrote anything, I was like, man, this is good. I'm good at this. And now I'm way less sure about it. Um, (laughs) I, I just, you know, I just, you, you can't never be arrogant when you've written a good song. You can only be grateful. And so, uh, it's, it's like, um, you know, I, I think that, okay, so I, I can give you an example with Sky, my daughter, who is just a stunningly good songwriter. Um, she, uh, when she was young, you know, she grew up in a house of where there was music everywhere, where I was writing songs. She sang with me on tour. She went to church with a bunch of people who were really great songwriters. So she grew up is the water that she swam in. So then when she was, you know, 12 or 13 and she was really starting to write her own songs, she would be really frustrated that her songs weren't as good as so-and-so's. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I, like I told her this many times, I was like, no, that's part of the gift. Like, like it's not like the, the, when somebody says you're gifted at songwriting, part of what that means is, you know what a good song is. You may not be able to write a good song yet, mm-hmm. but you know what a good song is. And that, that discontent that you feel with your own work is one of the things that is the thing that, that, um, it's like the the gadfly, you know, when Socrates said he was the gadfly of the Republic, like, like it's like the, the thing that's always going to be irritating the horse. And you're always going to be like, ah, I'm not, not sure if I, this isn't right yet, you know, but that's what's going to keep you alive and keep you moving forward. So having that sense of discernment um, about your own work and like, does this turn of phrase, um, is it? pleasing to the ear is it fun to say do you like when does it roll off the tongue in a pleasing way is it uh i don't know you know what i'm saying it's really it's really hard to explain or the opposite yeah the the opposite is is it actually twee did i just throw that out because it rhymed and it doesn't actually sound nice or yeah yeah there's plenty of songs that have gone in the bin because they just the same. Like, oh no, that's just cheap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> start again. Or you can. I can hear myself trying too hard. You know, to be clever. That was one of the things that I remember learning uh, from David Wilcox, who was a great songwriter. He talked uh, about um, how. Oh yeah, when I was a young songwriter, I was always trying to be clever. And I remember as a young man thinking, "What's wrong with being clever? Like that's part of the fun of songwriting is like the fun zinger line or the the rhyme that." <laughs> surprises you but like there's this lo- there's this point at which those things are distracting from the song you know um and you've probably heard me talk about the the whole analogy of the glasses falling off if i told you that like uh, jason gray told oh. yeah, it's talking about how the, in in america i don't know if they do it in the uk but there are these glass bottom boats that that um go out into like springs where there are pretty fish and you can like look down and see the fish underneath um, your feet in the boat and this writer was describing how when he was a boy he used to lie, lie on his stomach and lose himself in the world of the fish he would see all the seaweed floating around and the fish would swim and he would imagine that he was there but then sometimes his glasses would slip off of his nose and clatter on the glass and it would snap the, it would break the spell and he would realize oh I'm just on a boat I'm not underwater with the fish and so Jason was talking about how when you're when you're writing a song, don't let the reader's glass, don't let the listener's glasses fall off. You know, don't let, don't break the spell that you're creating. And and the way that you break that spell is by, you know, you've, you're casting this sort of spell with the song, the listener is lost in it, you know? And then all of a sudden you put your clever line or you, mm-hmm. you have, there's a moment in the song that breaks the spell and all of a sudden the per- person's on a boat. They're not swimming with the fish. Yeah. Like looking, o- looking over your work with that critical eye and going, is there anything in here that's going to make the glasses fall off? You know? Um, so yeah, that, that, that discerning process is, is a big part of it for me. Um, so it's, it's really, if you find yourself discontent with your work, that's a good place to be. As you know, um, a lot of what I do is write kids' songs. Um, so I'd love to chat to you about how you deal with loss, uh, grief in your storytelling for children. Um, you mentioned the Wingfeather Wing saga earlier on. Um, so people, if you've not read it yet, go out and buy it now. Um, 
the story pretty much starts with a black carriage taking children away. Um, please still go out and buy the book. Um, it's worth it. You start in a pretty dark place. So I guess why why did you do that? Um, and 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 how do those themes of uh, grief and loss work their way through the book? And 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 why why do you put there? Why is it not all happy go lucky? Um, well, I, one of the reasons I started with the black carriage was that I well I mean I wanted there to be a good hook for the story. I wanted people to like realize right out of the gate that, that this is not a safe world. Um, and I also wanted it to be a little bit of a, a, uh, it was fair warning to the reader. You know what I mean? Like, so I've had parents say, well, I read the first chapter and my kid is not ready for the story yet. So, uh, I think that's a good litmus test. Like if the first chapter is too scary for your kid, then maybe you should wait because the book, the story does go pretty, pretty heavy and pretty dark. But I like, as a boy, I was far more drawn to the stories that felt like they were a little dangerous, like they were, they were uh, trusting me um, to uh, yeah. be a, tough enough to deal with that stuff, you know? And I also have, I really believe that kids already know the world is broken. Like, from a very young age, they know it. They've seen us lose our tempers. They've walked through the room when the, when the news was on. You know, they've, they've experienced in their own hearts, their own selfishness, their own brokenness, you know? And so it doesn't do them much of a service, I think, to pretend like those things aren't, don't exist. And so the, in order to not make a straw man out of the darkness, you make the darkness strong. (laughs) You make the, you know, uh, you, you make the darkness tough and scary, um, so that when the goodness defeats it, it demonstrates that the goodness is stronger, right? And I think that's what the kids need to know. So when it comes to grief, I mean, my goodness, I I think Kate DiCamillo, I don't know how popular she is in the, in the UK, but she wrote The Tale of Despero and uh, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane and Because of Winn-Dixie. She's a celebrated children's author. And one of the main themes in her stories is sadness. There's this real beautiful treatment of sadness and acknowledgement of sadness in her stories um and i think that's why they resonate the way that they do and Catherine patterson is that way the bridge to terabithia like she's dealing with yes with death and um, big questions and kids are kids are they're humans you know <laughs> they're 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 uh they don't need to be protected as much as they need to be strengthened and edified does that make sense yeah yeah they need the armor putting on Rather than think so. whisking away from the battle, yeah, um, because they're going to face it. They're in it. Did you did you start out with an idea of those themes? I mean, you must have done if you thought, okay, black carriage is where I'm going to go. Yeah, how much of that was in your head already as you started the book? Uh, how much of it sort of uh, took a life of its own as you as you wrote? Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of like with the songwriting thing. Like I I. Uh... You don't sit down with an intention to, I'm going to write an album about this. I kind of did with Resurrection Letters, um, but it was still, I had no idea how I was going to write about what I was writing about with that. But most of the time it was more like um, you're an archaeologist and you're excavating a site and you're looking for clues and you're trying to understand what's already there. And so I think I can, like when I went back and reread the Wingfeather books during covid on Facebook, uh, I did the Facebook Live readings. It was the first time I had read the books um, in years. And so it was really interesting to have 10 years distance from it and to go back and read. One of the things that was interesting was that I could see uh, that I wasn't a very good writer yet in in places. (laughs) I was like, uh, you know, the books get better as they go. And I think it was just, I could see that happening. Uh, But the... But the other thing that I noticed, I was like, oh, I remember what was going on inside me when I was writing these things, you know. And one of the big things that uh, got me into the story what, thematically was um, people have asked me about the names, the, pro- the, the fact that they're naming is a big theme in the Wingfeather books, um, what your true name is mm-hmm. and what, you, what you're being called. You know, when, when the fangs are fanged, they're given a new name by the stonekeeper and... 
there's a lot about names in the in the books and and when i the season when i was beginning the wing feather saga was a season where my friend ron block who you know ron a little bit i think um ron mm. is i remember i was pouring out my heart to him one time because i was struggling with some sin or other and and he was just like reminding me that i have this new name in christ and it's unchanging and unchangeable and my name is written on his hand you know and he sent me a list of identity verses uh so that i could remember who i was in christ and so there's this beautiful long list of verses so he was just like go through uh, in the nights when you're being attacked by the enemy and you don't believe that you are beloved read these verses to remind yourself who you are in christ kind of like the comforting words in the anglican liturgy you know um the uh so that was what was going on inside me was this desperate clinging to the truth of who I am in Christ, not who the enemy is saying that I am, right? Mm. Because that was what I was struggling with, that very organically popped up in the story. You know what I mean? Like I, I didn't sit down thinking, I'm going to write a story about naming so kids will know that they are beloved in Christ. I was just telling a story about fangs and black carriages and three kids who were up against it. And uh, and I I looked back 10 years later and could see this is what was going on inside me when I was writing these stories. So people can not only read the Winged Feather Saga, but they can also watch it because it is a TV series now. Um, so do you want to tell people where they can where they can watch it? Because they can watch it for free, Yeah, right? it's free on angel.com. So if you go to angel.com, there's also an app on your phone and you can easily cast it to your TV there. Um, yeah, it's this really cool model that the Angel Angel Studios has where they want to make their content free to anybody who can watch it, but then they, you know, you have a way to pay it forward. You can, you know, if you like the show, you can tip, basically, and that goes to help fund future seasons. And so uh, we finished season one earlier this year, and we are deep into season two, and we're actually about to start the writing process for season three because everything overlaps, you know? So, like, season two is being animated right now. I don't know if you saw who's going to be in season two, uh, but Billy Boyd. <laughs> Billy Boyd, who was Pippin in The Lord of the Rings. He was just a lovely guy. We we talked with him in an interview. Hang on. Am I allowed to say that Billy Boyd is playing a bad bad guy? Yeah. Is that right? It is. He's playing uh, the overseer, who is the this really villainous guy in the Fork Factory. And, and he's great at it. Like, what's so funny, he's such a, a, a jolly hobbit that to hear him tap into this really dark <laughs> kind of Dickensian um, bad guy is just awesome. So um, yeah, it's just been a blast like to yeah. see the thing grow. So yeah, angel.com, you can watch season one now and season two. I'm not exactly sure when season two will be out, but we are hard at work on it. So um, yeah, hope you can check it out. Uh, that is amazing. Cool. And we'd love to um, play out with one of your songs. I say play out people stay tuned because there will be a giveaway at the end of the show so stay tuned for that but um it'd be great to play uh, a song of andrew's um at the end of the show so uh which song which song should we go for man i think given what we've talked about in in this episode i think the sower's song would be the one that i would pick uh it's one of my favorite songs i've ever gotten to write and it, it's the last song on the burning edge of dawn and it's in many ways sums up uh, what we've been talking about, but what that whole album is about, which is, it starts in John 14, and um, I think it's 14, maybe 15, uh, where Jesus talks about, I am the vine and you are the branches, abide in me, uh, and and this idea that is very agrarian, the whole song is. Uh, but then the end of the song is all imagery taken from Isaiah, mainly Isaiah 55, which is this, uh, I mean, that passage is just this thundering reminder of what God is doing. <laughs> he is growing a garden, you know, and uh, and gardens take time. Uh, but when they are in their fullness, when they are ripe, there is nothing more beautiful. And so that's what he's doing in us and around us and with his new creation. And so, um, yeah, that song is one of my favorite ones to sing. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Andrew. And um, we'll play the Sowers song. Cheers. Sorry, uh, editor Michael jumping in here. Before we have a listen to The Sower's Song, we've got a huge giveaway to tell you about. You can win a mega bundle of books courtesy of 10 of those, including the first book in the Wingfeather series that we've been talking about, 
and all nine titles from the Reformation Lightning series, which includes the first two books by author Hannah Hess, who we'll be interviewing later in the series. The full list of books is available in the show notes. To win, share a link to this show on social media and make sure you tag at Michael J. Tinker so I know that you've done it. And you'll go into the prize draw and we'll announce the winner at the start of episode three in two weeks' time. So share a link to this show in social media, tag at Michael J. Tinker, and you could be in a chance of winning that huge bundle. Okay, now have a listen to The Sower's Song.
Thank you for listening to When There Are No Words. Remember, you can support the show on Acast Plus, where you'll get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and other gifts. See you next time.